This morning I'm going to read, we're going to focus on the second half of the story that we started last week, but we're going to read the whole thing this morning. So I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12, and I'm going to read uh, all the way through to chapter, uh, verse 42. So the rest of the chapter here. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, follow along in your copy of God's Word this morning. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded among the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness for their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has sent to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, 
Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, We're working our way slowly through the book of Acts these days, this foundational story of the beginning of the church. It was originally written, of course, as the second volume to a man by the name of Theophilus, who may have been some sort of high-ranking Roman official. He himself was a follower of Jesus, but he was uncertain about a lot of things that were involved in following Jesus. So Luke wrote first a biography of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke, and then this story that tells the beginning of the church. And for us, as we pick this up, we recognize this is the fountainhead of the river in which we swim. This is where the stream starts with with these men and women in this city. And we're now in that river a couple thousand years later in this current that has just started here in the book of Acts. We read this passage, we read this book to find out um, the trajectory that God would set us on. It sets our priorities, Acts cements our values it reorients our attitudes and what i just read is the second account or the second stage of some persecution that started in acts chapter 4 and the climax of that story is in verse 41 that i read a minute ago when the apostles left the sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name that's a strange statement It's a strange statement, and actually chapter 5 is here to tell us how this group of people, a group of men that were not very well educated, that didn't have evidently a lot of particular skills, that were not politically influential or not financially well off, how this group of people gets to this point where they consider it an honor to be dishonored. That's strange. It's evidently an unusual group of men. Uh, Have you ever heard the expression, it was an honor just being nominated? You probably have. It's the cliche that will will be repeated endlessly in the spring when it comes to the awards season. All of them will come, the Oscars and the Tonys and and, uh, the People's Choice Award and the Golden Globes Award, all these awards for movies and television shows. I like what one commentator said about it. He said, I'm really glad that there are more and more award shows every year because if there's one group of hardworking Americans that does not get enough credit and acclaim, it's actors. It was an honor just being nominated. What they're saying is it was an honor at least um, to, to be considered for such an award. Here, the opposite is going on. It was an honor to be dishonored. 
There was a joy in being shamed. There is a pleasure for us in the fact that we are those among whom, uh, those that Christ has considered worthy to be persecuted. That's a strange thing to say. It's good, actually, that they left the Sanhedrin with that attitude because uh, in the book of Acts, the persecution is not going to stop. A couple of weeks ago, or several weeks ago, I went through the book of Acts to show you how the church prayed over and over again. You could do the same thing with, with persecution in the book of Acts. In chapter 4, it starts as Peter and John are arrested and kept overnight in prison for preaching. Here in chapter 5, all of the apostles are rest, arrested, and then they're uh, flogged. They're uh, the, 39, the 40 lashes minus 1, and then let go. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen is arrested. In Acts chapter 8, Stephen is, uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned because he's a follower of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, Saul, that great persecutor, leads his persecution against the church, and he was bent, the text says, on destroying the church. And the whole, the, the apostles, not the apostles, the church was just scattered. In Acts chapter 9, that same Saul, after he's converted, he starts preaching and he's persecuted so that at the end of the day, they lower him from a basket, his friends on the wall of the city. They let him get out of town as as quickly and as quietly as he can. In In Acts chapter 12, James is beheaded. Peter is imprisoned. In chapter 13, Paul is mocked in a synagogue so much he's forced out by the Jewish leaders. In chapter 14, Paul is stoned and dragged outside of the city of Lystra and left for dead. And then he tells the believers there, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested, beaten, and thrown in a Philippian jail. In chapter 17, there's an anti-Christian mob that forms in Thessalonica, and Jason is fined for it. In Athens, Paul is sneered at with condescension from the elites in the city of Athens. In chapter 18, he's abused. In chapter 19, he's publicly maligned. He causes a riot in Ephesus. People are so mad with him. In chapter 21, he's arrested in Jerusalem. He gets out of a flogging only when he claims to be a Roman citizen. In chapter 23, he's rescued from the Romans, and the reason the Romans rescue him is because 40 men have taken a vow that they will not eat or drink until they kill Paul. In chapter 24, he's in in prison for two years. In chapter 27, he escapes a shipwreck, swims onto an island. He's bitten by a viper, and people around him say, oh, yeah, the sea didn't get him, but the snakes are. That's justice right there. And in chapter 28, at the end of the book, he's in house arrest in Rome. If that's going to be your career, you better learn quickly that it is an honor to be dishonored for the sake of the name. They had to figure this out early. They had to figure it out because Paul wrote, as Kelly read, everyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We live in an anomalous time. We should understand how unique we we appear to be at the end of a 200-year period of time uh, when in North America and Northern Europe, Christians have been spared from persecution. But things are changing. Um, Under the weight of the sexual revolution, cultural Christianity has collapsed. Christianity has gone from being uh, important to irrelevant, and now Christianity is immoral. 
So 1 Peter 4.12, this verse is, is going to take on a lot more relevance to us. Verses like this. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, let's remember here, as we gather here together this morning, that there are followers of Jesus Christ around the world who, don't, who aren't living in this anomalous period of uh, being persecution-free. There's a, a, ma- a ministry organization that's called Asian Access, It's in a country of the world that they don't like to publicize uh, very much. It's in Southeast Asia. The majority religion is Hinduism, and we have friends who live in that country. And uh, many of the the workers with Asian access have started asking questions before new converts are interested in being baptized. They ask them these pointed questions to see, are you really ready for this? Are you really ready to uh, go public with your faith as baptism is meant to do? Here's here's the questions that they asked. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village of those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? These are things that don't happen in Conestoga. This is not going to be in the headlines as an event in Willow Street in tomorrow's newspaper. But there are brothers and sisters around the world who are enduring this sort of persecution. How do you get to the point where it is an honor to be dishonored for the sake of Christ? This morning I want to show you from this passage six things that are true about what we believe that set us on this path. I think they arise from this text and they're part of Luke's preparation, part of Luke's argument to us as to why too we should take up this attitude of joy because we are counted worthy to suffer disgrace for his name. So here those six things are. Number one. Things to remember. Your opponents are not as competent as you think. Your opponents are not as competent as you think. I'm not sure the word opponent is the best there, but uh, this is certainly an adversarial passage. We actually believe uh, when we think about those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, we take, uh, remember Abraham Lincoln's line, the best way to destroy your enemy is to make him a friend. It's a good line for those of us who are followers of Christ. But there is adversary, adversarial relationships here. Think for a minute, before, before we look at the text again, think for a minute about the person in your life who is most likely to make you suffer for your commitment to Christ. Who is it in your life who is most likely to make you suffer for your commitment to Christ? Um, maybe it's someone at school or a coworker, or a neighbor. Maybe if you start talking too much about Christ, it will really annoy your brother-in-law, and every family gathering for the rest of your life is going to be the pits. I'm not sure how, much this, how often this happens. I imagine it will be increasingly true. Uh, Bethany Paquette was a, um, a young woman. She's from Canada, British Columbia. And she wanted to apply for an internship with a wilderness program, uh, wilderness uh, company. It's called Amaruk. 
Amaruk is a Norwegian-based company. They have a, a branch in British Columbia. And Bethany Paquette, one summer, uh, recently actually, wanted to uh, work in their internship program, and she was going to lead whitewater rafting guides in British Columbia. So she sent her letter in and her application in, and I want to read some of the response, one, a bit of the response she got. Um, you should know that before I read it, that Bethany is a graduate of Trinity Western University. Trinity Western University is a college near Vancouver, Canada, uh, and uh, they have as part of their members, as part of their um, student life agreement, they have a student life community covenant. And as part of the community covenant, it says that in order to get, uh, engage in sexual intimacy, you should be married. And it defines marriage as a union of one man and one woman. So very evangelical, uh, normal, biblical uh, statement. Well, she wrote that she had been a student as she graduated from Trinity Western University on her application. And here's part of the letter that she received back from Olaf Amundsen, who was the director of hiring. This is what, what he wrote. I do not understand the purpose of your application, considering you do not meet the minimum requirements that are clearly outlined on our website. And that could have ended it right there. But then he wrote this. Additionally, considering you are involved with Trinity Western University, I should mention that, unlike Trinity Western University, we embrace diversity and the right of people to sleep with or marry whoever they want. And this is reflected within some of our staff and management. The Norse background of most of the guys at the management level means that we are not a Christian organization, and most of us see Christian, Christianity as having destroyed our culture, tradition, and way of life. It's interesting. Uh, something similar actually is happening in Massachusetts. Perhaps some of you have heard about what's happening in Gordon College. Gordon College uh, is outside of Boston. Um, not too long ago when the president was considering releasing a, an executive order about employee non-discrimination and he was going to include sexual orientation in the language, uh, Michael Lindsay, who was the president of Gordon College, joined other evangelical leaders and wrote a letter to the president asking that he include in his executive order an exemption for religious convictions. Because of that, uh, Gordon College is now having their accreditation reviewed, and the local school district has announced that they are no longer going to accept volunteers from Gordon College in the school system. <laughs> Ironically, one of the school board members said, we don't want to have to be the ones in our school who teach Gordon students not to discriminate. Of course, he's teaching the students he already has to discriminate against Gordon College students, but that logic eludes us, right? What if the opponent that I ask you to think about has the right to deny your employment? So the passage reminds us that the opponents that we have are not as competent as you think they are or as you fear they are. Maybe you're afraid of them for the wrong reasons. You're thinking about that guy and what's he, what, he's, what he is going to say if you tell him you're a follower of Christ. Or you're thinking about that neighbor or you're thinking about your obnoxious brother-in-law. What is he going to say? Maybe you're afraid for the wrong reasons because in this story, these opponents, <laughs> they're not as competent as they think. They... Um, they, uh, we talked last week about how they were driven by jealousy and they're afraid. And actually in this story, they're weak and confused. Look at verse 28, um, this straight out acknowledgement. We told you what to do and you didn't do it. How powerless are they? Not very. 
then there's this whole issue in verse 28 about the blood. You are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Notice he doesn't even use Jesus' name. He won't even mention it. It's this man or that one. And I find this whole claim about the blood just to be strange, not because of the metaphor. You're trying to make us guilty for Jesus' death. I don't find it strange because of the metaphor. I find it strange because of what happened during Jesus' trial. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 27, the, the religious leaders bring Jesus before Pilate. Pilate examines him, can't find any reason to uh, punish him. And the crowd yells out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And they say in Matthew 27, let his blood be on us and on our children. And now here in Acts chapter 5, they're saying, you're trying to make us guilty of this man's blood. It's what you asked for. Why are you complaining about it now? And just in case any of you have any doubt about whether or not Peter is trying to make them guilty of Jesus' death, he says in verse 39, you killed him. Absolute clarity on Peter's part there. Luke shows us their their weakness further by what happens at the end. Verse 42, they uh, actually verse 40, they say, don't speak about Jesus anymore. And then verse 42, sure, day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped. Uh, Here's the reason why they're so frustrated. You know why these, these leaders, these opponents are so frustrated? Gamaliel tells us, If you oppose these men and they're from God, you are fighting against God. Your opponents are not as competent as you think they are. Who's that person who's most likely to make you suffer for your faith in Christ Jesus? I wonder if you're afraid of that person for the wrong reason. Now, second, notice this here. You are called, you are serving an exalted Savior. You're serving an exalted Savior. This may be my favorite verse in this whole section, verse 31. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and Savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We remember this crucial teaching all the way through the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus' exaltation. Jesus is risen He is seated at his father's right hand. He is the great savior. Well, we talk about him as the great savior a lot, the one who delivers from evil. But here he's the prince. He shares God's authority. He is exalted on high. This This should lift your heart. Oh, yes, that's where the Lord Jesus is. Look where he is. Is there anyone, is there anyone who is more worthy of being where the Lord Jesus is than the Lord Jesus himself? Is there anyone who has his wisdom? Anybody who has his power? Anybody who has his graciousness? There is no one. He is exactly where he belongs. And knowing that he's there satisfies us in every possible way. If you're a baseball fan, you no doubt have been watching, uh, perhaps over the last few months, the, the Yankees are out now, but uh, no amens, please. So uh, the Yankees are out, of course, and, uh, 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 for, but for the last several games of the season, it was a huge love fest for Derek Jeter, 20 years shortstop for the New York Yankees. 
And by all accounts, Derek Jeter has not only played baseball well, but he has been an upstanding, respectable, honorable person. And there's a sense, I you know some people have complained about this being overdone. I understand that. But there's a sense in which the honor that is given to him is, is just right. It's just good. It's appropriate that we, we can cheer this man. Let's, let's thank him for the excellent work he's done in the sport that so many Americans love. There's a sense of appropriateness about it. Multiply that by 10,000 and you get what Peter is saying in Acts 5.31. Jesus is exalted at God's right hand and he is perfect. He's absolutely, he is, it's completely right and good and satisfying that he is there. It's an honor to be dishonored for him, knowing where he is and what he's done. Now third, what else is there here that is supposed to um, teach us that it's an honor to be dishonored? Number three, you're not alone in representing Christ. You're not alone in representing Christ. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in John chapter 15. When the Advocate comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The apostles, they stand before the Sanhedrin and they're so confident. They're not alone in this work. The Holy Spirit is witness. And this should comfort you and give you confidence. When you leave the room, the witnessing isn't over. It's not ceased. See, the Holy Spirit works masterfully in hearts and in minds. He he clarifies what you muddle. He convicts where you face resistance. You're not alone in this. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. If your son or your daughter has, has turned from the faith, and they've moved 500 miles away from you, or if you, you've, you've they've cut you out of their lives, or if, if you can't seem to penetrate the objections that they have, remember, remember that the Holy Spirit is not limited by anyone's proximity to your mouth. He's not limited by your ability to speak. When you leave the room and your conversation ends, He remains. And even if you're in prison, the Spirit speaks. You're not alone in representing Christ. How thankful we are for the witnessing work of the Holy Spirit that doesn't stop when your mouth closes. Now, number four here, you are giving people what they desperately need. You're giving people what they desperately need. When you are dishonored as a representative of Jesus Christ, remember, they might not realize it, but you're giving people what they need. Verse 31 again says, He is exalted as Prince and Savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. This is how we know these men are opponents, but they're not really opponents. The offer of forgiveness to them still stands. They still can be forgiven for what they have done to the Lord Jesus. What we see actually in this two-volume work that Luke has written is that we see here uh, passing by in a few months... 
in specific detail these Jewish leaders doing what all humanity has done. See, Jesus Christ has come into the world. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived in Nazareth. He served in Galilee. He did miracles in Judea. And in time, he offered himself as king to those who were living in Jerusalem. God in the flesh has come. He's returned to Jerusalem, but they would not have him. They rejected him. And in fact, they crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And now here through the message of these apostles, they have another opportunity to turn to him, to be forgiven for rejecting him. And you can see here that that microcosm of the story that every human being lives. This is the parable of your natural life. From the beginning, human beings have rejected the authority of God. The Bible calls this sin. We have broken his rules. We have rejected the relationship with him that he created us to enjoy. And this rejection is a crime deserving death. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says that no one with any sense would ever challenge a potter about what he does with the clay that won't respond to his working hands. God is well within the boundaries of justice in sending uh, all of us to hell as objects of his wrath. And for that rejection, we need forgiveness too. And the offer still stands. The offer of forgiveness to all who turn to him in faith. And for that person, it stands even for that person who can make your life so difficult for naming Christ's name. The offer stands for Olaf Amundsen and every other member of the senior management at Amaruk. Stands for every person here. In the name of Jesus Christ and on the authority of the Bible, I can stand before you and implore you and invite you and plead with you to turn to Jesus Christ, to trust in him as exalted prince and savior. He is mighty to save all those who trust in him. The Bible speaks to you about what you desperately need. And it's your privilege as a follower of Jesus Christ to speak that to other people. Even if it brings you reproach from those other people. Now, number five, here's the fifth truth in this passage that moves Christ's people to a point where there's joy in being shamed. You are on God's side. You are on God's side. And here what I want to do is I want to enter into the logic of Gamaliel. Gamaliel's an interesting character in the book of Acts. He stands here in the Sanhedrin. Uh, he was a well-known Pharisee, the best Bible teacher in Israel, the most well-known Bible teacher. He had a famous student. His name was Saul of Tarsus. We'll talk about um, Saul and Gamaliel a little bit later. Well, Gamaliel's listening to this and seeing all this, and he, sends the, he stands up, and because of his high regard, he has the authority, he sends out um, the apostles from the room, and he begins to address the Sanhedrin, and he makes this argument. And I, I wonder how, how good is this argument? Uh, on the one hand, it, um, it did calm everybody down. At least there's somebody in this room who's not a raging lunatic, Right? Gamaliel's there and he's thinking. So it's effective in that way. But this argument, it falls short in a, in a few key um, ways. Here's his, his argument. He says, 
Every movement over time that has been rooted only in the thought and mind of human beings withers and dies. This has happened, and he cites two examples. Two men, um, we can trace the story of Judas the Galilean from extra-biblical sources. We're not sure about the first one he mentions, Thutis. But he has these two cases. There's two guys. They rise to prominence. They have men surrounding them. And when the, the, the leaders are killed, uh, the, the movement scatters. So Gamaliel, that's his point. If, if a movement is only from human beings, from human being will and purpose and power, then it fades. The problem with that logic, though, is that not, it's, that's not what always happens, is it? Um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was founded in 1844, and it's still growing. Islam is 1,300 years old and may now be the world's largest religion. So Gamaliel's not quite right here. Another problem with his argument, I don't think it's a great argument. I think if the Sanhedrin had thought about this a little bit more, they would have, have had a problem with it. Gamaliel is committing them to a, a course of action, isn't it? Isn't he? He's saying to them, um, if this movement continues to grow, that will be a sign that it's from God. And they agree with that, which means that if the movement continues to grow, they should what? <laughs> Repent and follow Jesus. I don't think the Sanhedrin really wanted to commit to that path. The third argument, uh, third reason, with, uh, problem with this argument is actually he doesn't deal with the accusations at all that Peter's made against him. He didn't say anything about the fact that Peter said, you killed him. He just kind of skips that and leaves that alone. Despite the problems with the argument, though, I think Luke records it here because he wants you to know, dear reader, he wants you to know that the message about Jesus is not solely born in the heart and mind of men. It comes from God. That's why you're reading the book of Acts this morning, because this is God's work. Even as it will be opposed everywhere it goes, God is the one who is moving it along. So don't be ashamed to be shamed for the name of Christ. Now finally here, number six. Why is it an honor to be dishonored for Christ's sake? Because you are participating in suffering with Christ. You're participating in suffering with Christ. See, the text emphasizes their joy not in the suffering itself, Christians are not masochists, but they're joyful because it demonstrates the reality of their faith, that they're really following Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? If anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me in my footsteps on the Calvary road. You know what's amazing about this passage here is they're standing in the same place that Jesus stood when he was brought to trial before the Sanhedrin. Is it the same courtyard where Jesus was flogged that these 12 men are lined up and flogged? They're standing in a trial before these same men who just a few months ago had condemned Jesus to death. They really are his followers. They're walking in his path. Now, there's a key difference here to understand that we shouldn't ignore between their suffering and Jesus' suffering. Peter alludes to it in verse 30. We should look at it because it's important. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, hanging on a cross. 
See, this, this comes up often in the New Testament. This is a, a key theme in the early writers of the New Testament. Deuteronomy 21:23 says that if anybody hangs on a tree, he is cursed. And what Peter wants everyone listening to know, and he wants to remind the Sanhedrin, is that when they condemned Jesus to die on the cross, when they pushed Pilate to crucify him, they were not just thinking about the physical pain, they were also thinking about this curse from God. Let Jesus be cursed. Remember this, to grasp the full significance of Christ's sufferings. It was not merely physical. It was about bearing the wrath of God. In the early chapters of Genesis, what does God do in Genesis 1 through 3, up until chapter 3? Over and over again, he blesses. He blesses. Oh, this is good. He says, this is good. This is good. This is, this is blessed. And, and now here he turns in significance to cursing. See, the leading edge of Christ's suffering was not physical. The leading edge of Christ's suffering is that he bore the destructive wrath of God. And that suffering rescues and redeems. Now, the apostles are not joining into rescuing and redeeming suffering, but they're suffering because they've been found worthy of following in his footsteps. Oh, you have good company. You have good company. If you're standing at work or you're walking the halls of school and someone is making fun of you for being a Christian, you have good company there. Someone asked Roger Staubach, do you remember Roger Staubach, the former quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys uh, many years ago? Somebody asked him once about football injuries. How do you keep on playing if you're playing professional football? And Stahlbeck said, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. We could say something very similar about following Christ. If you're not following hurt, you're not following at all. It's an honor to be dishonored for his name. Let's agree, brothers and sisters, that that is true. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we recognize this, this passage. We're grateful to you because this passage is foreign to our experience. Most of us, our experience having lived here in the United States, we have not suffered physically or economically or socially like um, our brothers and sisters around the world. To my knowledge, nobody here has been kicked out of their parents' home or disowned. Uh, And and yet, uh, Father, um, we anticipate those days are coming. And we do think about the cost that we sometimes bear for naming Christ's name. Nobody here in this room wants to be mocked. None of us are, are glad about condescension or... Um, people who will use their words to, to denigrate us or, or, or disown us or disregard us. None of us here are excited about that. And yet, Lord, we have this calling to follow you, Lord Jesus, on the Calvary Road. So we ask that you would grant us courage, that you would transform our minds and our hearts so that we would consider it an honor to be dishonored for the sake of your name. 
Grant, Father, that we might see both the message we carry and the opponents that face us in a different light because of the supreme triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, help us. Lord, we, we ask that you, according to your kindness, would use us in, in companies around Lancaster County, uh, in neighborhoods represented here, in schools, to, to um, glorify Christ by speaking his name. Grant us courage to do that. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.